How are we doing, people? We're doing good? Yeah. It was really nice. We had sun on Friday. Did anyone see that? Or were you all just so used to the rain that you didn't realize it happened? <laughs> Honestly, it's funny because I, I remember a couple of years ago when we had a massive rainy season and all anyone talked about was all the rain, but I noticed that now no one's even mentioning it. It's like, oh, it's just, it's just normal. That's what we do now. We just rain. So, um, yeah, I hope you managed to find some sun on um, Friday and enjoy that. Um, yeah, so I, um, so we're doing, doing a miracle series, right, which is, going, which is great. Um, and I was putting together some stuff for it and, um, you know, being my typical teacher self and I'm breaking down words and I'm looking at all this stuff. And I came across this really cool thing that I'm going to share with you. And there are four primary Greek words that they um, translate for the word miracle. Because in all honesty, um, there's not one word that can cover miracle, right? Like a miracle is a miracle. So how can you describe that? And so the four, four words that they use, one is um, ergon, which is works. Then there's tiras, which is wonders. Dunamis, which is power, the one we probably most of us actually know. Um, and simeon, which is signs. And what what is amazing is that these do not actually talk about different types of miracles. What they are portraying is different perspectives of the miracle. And I was kind of thinking about that because a miracle affects more than one person, right? It affects a person that wants the miracle, but it also affects their family. It it can affect the people around them. It can affect, if if it's a physical healing miracle, it can affect the doctors that are suddenly trying to grapple with how did this thing happen. And, And I came across this amazing quote that I would like to share with you. And I just, uh, this definition, I think it's brilliant, by Ron Rhodes. And he says, a unique and extraordinary event awakening wonder wrought by divine power, accomplishing some practical and benevolent work and authenticating or signifying as a sign, a messenger and his message as from God. And I actually thought that was an absolutely brilliant definition for miracle because it covered all four facets of what a miracle is. And so I was like, I've got to share this with everybody. So I've shared it with you guys. Um, And one of the things, though, that I've been struggling with is putting together this this series. It's not not going the direction that I thought it would. Like, honestly, you know, when when you feel the Holy Spirit talking to you about doing a series and, and, you know, Craig and I always talk about what we're going to preach for the the church and what the, the series is going to look like, and you have this vague idea of what you think God's going to say. And then this is, this is kind of going a completely different direction. So that meant that all my study um, around the definitions was kind of worthless, but it was really exciting, so I wanted to share it with you anyway. Because <laughs> i got to teach something, right? So, so the direction I've kind of gone in, it was, was sparked by something else. And we live in this immediate culture, right? Like, if you're hungry, you can, you can go down the road, and in five minutes, you can hit a fast food joint, and you will have a, me- a hot meal in under five minutes. It's, it's wonderful. If you really want, you can throw something in the microwave, and in 30 seconds, you can be sitting down eating, right? We live in this immediate culture, this immediate lifestyle, even to the point that if you want to buy something online, they will ship it to you the next day. Like, that's how immediate these things are becoming. If you have this interesting fact that you've been thinking about, you can just grab your phone or your laptop or your iPad or whatever, you you open up Google, and you can find out all about whatever it is that you've been thinking about. You know, it's, it's an immediate 
culture. But what has this actually taught us? And it's something, it's taught us that we have tools at our fingertips that we can get whatever we want pretty much as soon as possible. See, gone are the days when you actually have to go to the library and get out an encyclopedia to look up this random fact. No one else does that? Was that just me? Oh, I thought we all did that. No, okay, I just did that, fine. But you know what? Some of you, I bet, don't even remember what the world was like before smartphones or the internet, right? Some of you, I don't even think, were born without those things being in place. And in this time that we live in, I've kind of noticed something, that we take this immediacy, we take this, this instant society, and we actually think that it exists in the church. We think that when we come to God and we pray and we ask him for stuff, that he's going to answer us straight away. We actually do. We, we kind of have that thought. Or we think that we waited a week and that's long enough, Right? We think that when we go to God and we want to, we're asking him for healing or we're asking him for provision, we're asking him for whatever miracle it is that we want, we actually kind of expect him to answer us straight away. And, and we get a little frustrated when he does and then we decide, oh, well, there's no God because he didn't answer me right this minute. When you pray, God gives you one of three answers. Straight away, he'll say yes, he'll say no, or he'll say Wait. The thing is, you don't know which answer he's given you. You really don't. Because he could say yes, but his yes is in five years' time, but you don't know that. So you've assumed that he's not answered you, right? But he's actually said yes. Or he could have said no, but you're not going to know that until you get to heaven and you didn't get what it was that you were praying for. Like, or if he said wait, because you're not quite ready. Or wait, because the things haven't quite, you're not in the place that God needs you to be. The truth is that we don't always get exactly what we want when we want it. And we must choose to believe God for miracles, even when we're not seeing them happen immediately. And we have to base our faith on God's character over the emotions that may come in the waiting. See, asking, believing, hoping, and praying for miracles is actually spiritual warfare. We don't think about it like that. But when you are asking God for something that's miraculous, something that's outside of what you can do for yourself, it's miraculous. Therefore, it falls into the realm of the spiritual. And you know what? The devil doesn't want you to have it, so it becomes spiritual warfare. He's not going to just let you hope and want without coming against you for it. And last week, during the lead up to worship, Seth spoke about briefly, very briefly, about the necessity of praise. And the one little statement that he made kind of detoured what I wanted to talk about. And I want to kind of expand on that for you. Because praise is a power principle. You see, man was created to live and breathe in an atmosphere of praiseful worship to our creator, to God. You see, what would happen is we had this inflow of divine power that would be equivalent to the outflow of our um, joyous, humble praise towards God. Now, this bond that we had was broken by sin when uh, was broken when sin entered. And what happened is instead of having this praiseful relationship with God, it introduced self-centeredness, it introduced self-pitying, and it introduced complaint. 
When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, our daily living calls for us to be in prayer, calls for us to read the words so that we have understanding and know how to live. But our daily approach to God in that communion is to be paved with praise. It says quite clearly in Psalms 100 verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. The writer of this psalm pictures the people of God entering in through the gates and into the courts of the temple. Now, we cannot go in an arrogant intrusion into the, into the courts of God. We cannot just boldly walk in there with an attitude. Now, we can walk boldly in there because we're his children. You see, things have shifted for us from when, when the Old Testament. You see, because now the veil has been torn and the doors have been swung open and we've been given ability to walk in there. But you've got to remember, we're still actually walking in and see a king, right? I think Christianity globally for a good 15, 20 odd years keeps preaching about Jesus being your friend. And yes, he is your friend, but he's also a king. The problem is when we constantly think about Jesus as being our friend, we can have a little bit of contempt because familiarity breeds contempt, right? And so then when we come to him, we come in and we're a little bit sloppy in the way that we approach him. We're a little bit self-indulgent in the way that we approach him because he is king. And as we approach him, we should do so with thanksgiving, recognizing how much God has done for us. Thanks and praise merge together as we come and we're thankful and we bless his name. You shouldn't actually rush this process just to get to what it is you want to talk to him about. You have to remember you are dealing with a king, a loving king, but he's still king. It's not about getting to what we want. It's not about us coming in and and going, okay, yes, God, you're awesome and wonderful, but I have this list of things I need you to do for me because he's not a genie. Yeah, we tend to sometimes treat him that way, right? And I get it, because sometimes you've been praying, and you might feel like your prayers just aren't getting through. Have you ever been in that situation where you've been praying, and you just, you just feel like your prayers aren't going anywhere? You see, God always hears your prayers. That's a fact. That's a truth. He will always hear your prayers, but when we feel like our prayers are not getting through, I actually believe that there's a presence of satanic forces that get in, in between and they're oppressing us. And at the moment, when we are surrounded by the second heaven, sorry, you guys know there are three heavens, right? Okay. I don't have time to teach you about the three heavens. But if you go onto our pod beam, there's a whole message done about the, about the three heavens. Um, But trust me, there are three heavens, all right? We can talk about it later. Maybe later on I'll do another message. But there is one on Podbean if you want to know. Go back and check it out. All right, so we're surrounded by the second heaven. We're surrounded by Satan and his armies, which means it's time for war. Because every time you pray and petition God, every time you bring a, a need before God, you are actually entering into spiritual warfare whether you want to or not. And it's time that as a Christian, you go, oh, but, you know, I don't want to be a fighter. The devil doesn't care. When you became a Christian, God took you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light. And at the same time, he made you a soldier. That's how it worked. You are actually in a spiritual battle all the time. Now, when Israel went into battle, there was one tribe that always went first, the tribe of Judah. And in Judges 1, 
chapter one, uh, chapter one, verses one to two. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be first to go up against the Canaanites and fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land of his hand. Then the whole book goes on and on. Chapter 20, verse 18. The children of Israel arose and went to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah first. If you read through the whole book of Judges, all the time, every time, it was Judah. Judah had to go first. See, one of the meanings of the name of Judah is praise. Symbolically, God was teaching us, and Jesus taught us this also in the Lord's Prayer, that we should always approach warfare with praise going before us. You see, no matter what is going on in your life, you must always start with praise. No matter how bad your circumstances, you have to start with praise. Praise has to be, has to be your starting point. Believing for the miraculous is spiritual warfare. What's really interesting is that Strong's Concordance lists one of the root words of Judah as yada. And it's really exciting when you read some of the meanings for that word. It means to throw a stone or an arrow. It means to revere or worship with extended hands. It means to praise. It means to shoot. I think it's kind of amazing that the same word that speaks of reverence and worship for God also speaks about throwing stones and arrows and shooting. To me, it's obvious that praise is a formidable weapon against the enemy. When you feel surrounded by demonic presence, the most strategic thing you can do is lift up your hands and praise the name of the Lord. See, your praises bombard the middle heaven. And when you say, thank you, Jesus, I love you, Lord. I give you all honor and glory. I magnify your name. What you're actually doing is throwing stones and arrows at the demons around you. You're actually shooting at the forces of the enemy. And that's warfare. Probably the easiest way you're ever going to fight. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 16, it says, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who brought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So there's a situation where Jesus has gone and he's brought correction into the temple. Admittedly, it was probably a bit of a harsh correction, overturning it and was, you know, kind of messy and loud. But he brought in this correction and then they criticized him for it. What they were actually criticized was the fact that these children had seen him, had a revelation of who he was, and they were bringing praise to him. And that made, that made them really indignant, and they were really upset with him. And when they questioned him, Jesus quotes to them Psalm 8, verse 2. Perfected praise. Do you know that perfected praise will produce strength? It is powerful. At the very moment that Jesus is being rejected by the leaders, these young people are, are captivated by the full meaning of who Jesus is. And they bring forth such loud praise. When you are believing for the miraculous, you need strength. 
Praise produces strength. In Acts 16, and I love this story. It's kind of long, so just bear with me. It starts at verse 16. Now it happened as we went to the prayer that a certain slave girl was possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And for this and this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And then they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having seen such charge, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosened. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out in a loud voice saying, do, no, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called out, for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all those who were in this house. And he took them that same hour of night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all of his household. I want to focus on verses 25 and 26. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. But at midnight, at midnight it's dark. At midnight you're by yourself. At midnight you're usually lying on your bed, right? And you're sleeping and you're kind of thinking. That's what happens at midnight. Midnight's usually a lonely place. And Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I love that. You see, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison for some vague charge of being troublemakers. Basically, they were exercising their right of free speech and they were getting in trouble for it. Kind of like the situation we can find ourselves in today. And I think the fact that we are still struggling with that today shows that we haven't learned much in 2,000 odd years. But they were then taken, they were severely beaten. What's interesting about this is that the Jews had a rule about how many times you could be beaten. You could only be beating up to 39 hits. That was it. That was, the, you couldn't do, that was it. But the Romans, they didn't have any such rule, so they could beat you for as long as they liked. What the Romans here didn't know, of course, is that Paul was a Roman citizen, but they never bothered asking. So when it says that they were severely beaten, they were severely beaten. Like, we're not just talking a couple of hits here. Then they get imprisoned in a maximum security conditions. 
right? They took them to the inner part of the prison, not one of the outer cells. We're going to take these guys who are talking about things because they're that violent. They're talking about things because that's really violent. And we're going to put them in the maximum security part of the prison. And not only that, we're going to put their feet in stocks. And when they used to put their feet in stocks, it, it wasn't like, like, you know, when you go to um, Motat and they had those pretend stocks that you can, I don't know, does anyone go to Motat? Is that just me? Yeah. All right. I'm a little bit of a nerd. I made Craig go with me to Egypt to uh, exhibition at the museum on Friday, um, <laughs> which he loved. Um, so yeah, so when they put them in the stocks, this, these were not comfortable stocks. They were done in such a way that your legs were on funny angles. And so, so it was painful, right? And so they get them in this thing and they're surrounded by murderers. They're surrounded by thieves. They're surrounded by rapists and just awful, awful people. And you know that the demonic always likes to hang out where they're comfortable. Not only that, but they're, could you imagine the depression in that place? Can you imagine the anger and the violence that would just kind of simmer above the surface that you could feel it in the atmosphere? And these prisons weren't comfortable prisons. They didn't actually have indoor plumbing. Like these were smelly, awful, disgusting places. The stench in there probably would have turned their stomach, right? And Paul's sitting there and he turns to Silas and he says this, he goes, if we make bail and get out of here tonight, I'm gonna praise the Lord. No, that's not what he said. But how many of us do that, right? All too often, we wait for God to move before we praise him. We think he needs to give us a reason to praise him. You need to understand that we thank God for what he has done. We praise him for what he is able to do. The two are different. We thank God for what he has done. We praise him for what he is able to do. You see, God is worthy of praise whether he comes through for you or not. God is worthy of praise whether he rescues you or not. God is worthy of praise because he is God, not for any other reason. Not because you like him, not because he did what you want, not because he's a genie and, and he granted your wishes. God deserves praise because he is God. And it's regardless of your circumstances, it's regardless of how you feel about it, how your emotions are, or that you feel picked on, or that you feel that nobody loves you, that's irrelevant to the fact that God deserves praise because he is God. You see, anyone can be happy in pleasant circumstances. But real joy comes from within. And it's a gift available to us as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. See, regardless of my circumstances, He is worthy. And if you're waiting for God to provide your miracle, if you're waiting for him to get you out of prison, or if you're waiting for him to get you out of your marital problems, or, or to bring a healing to you, or if you're waiting for him to solve your financial crisis before you praise him, you probably should get comfortable because it's not gonna happen. You're gonna be there for a long while. Because Paul and Silas understood the function of praise. Their circumstances had not changed. Things looked as bleak at that moment as they did five minutes before. The situation was actually hopeless, but they praise God anyway. See, God is worthy of praise regardless of our circumstances. 
And as they began to lift up the name of the Lord, throwing those stones and arrows into the middle heaven, and the demons begin to shriek back in horror, and suddenly the atmosphere begins to change in that darkened prison. And the kingdom of God begins to displace the kingdom of Satan. And the glory of God, the third heaven, completely fills the interior of that building, which was incapable then of actually handling that awesome power. And the walls began to shake, and the doors of the prison completely swung open, and they were set free. And not just that, but a man was converted, and his entire household was saved. And to think, it all just started with praise. Why does God inhabit the praises of his people? Because as our praises break through Satan's territory and drive back demonic forces, the glory of God and his presence rains down upon us and fills the habitation, the space that we're created for him. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 7 says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love which he with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by the grace that you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, then the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. How can we sit in heavenly places? Now either God has some really big high chairs, or perhaps instead he moves his heaven to us. Our praises bring his heaven to us. I tell people all the time to fill your home with worship, to fill your home with praise. You ask my family, our house has always got worship playing in it. Our car, my car has always got worship praying, playing in it. In fact, there have been times in my life where I've needed to spend some time with God because I'm battling with some stuff. So the kids will know because all of a sudden out of my bedroom is going to come blasting very loud praise and worship. And they'll come in and Craig will go, where's mom? And they'll go, she's with Jesus in the bedroom. You can hear her. And why do I do that? Because it keeps Jesus at the forefront of my thoughts. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen has been martyred for the cause of Christ. Verse 54, and he says, And then they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on the Lord, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge him with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. As stones were being hurled at his body, breaking his bones and crushing his vital organs, as life was completely draining from him, instead of becoming bitter and feeling sorry for himself, he continued to lift up the name of the Lord. Verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, the first heaven had been pushed back. The second heaven had been displaced and he was standing face to face with the throne of God, directly before him. God was not afar off viewing his death from some remote location. God's presence, the third heaven, was right in front of him. In the midst of our greatest trials, we can experience the presence of God by simply doing that which we were created for, praising his name. His purpose in telling us about 
heaven and what it's going to be like is to inspire us to persevere and keep pressing on when we face these things. You just have to keep praising him. See, when you're believing for the miraculous, you need strength. Praise produces strength. Can I have the band come? I just want to share a testimony. Some of you would have heard this testimony. And so I apologize, but I kind of wanted to, to demonstrate through my own life how praise produces strength. So some of you will know that, that we had three miscarriages. The first one, to be honest, was, was a real shock. And I didn't even really have time to pray about it or seek God about it because it was a shock. I, was, I think I was in shock. Like if I reviewed like now from, you know, 20 odd years of distance. And the reason why I was so shocked is because the women in my family are peasants. They give birth so easily and quickly, it's not funny. Like, and, then, and then I couldn't, and I was failing. And I had to kind of deal with the whole thing. And if, you, if you've had miscarriages, you, had the, you, you know what I'm talking about, where you feel like you fail as a woman. This is the one thing you're supposed to be able to do, and I'm screwing it up, and I can't do it. Like, you know, and, and so I was in, in shock. So it ought to be fair, I, yeah, I never actually went to God about praying about this not happening and needing a miracle. I was just stunned. The second miscarriage was we'd gone through the, we'd gone beyond the 12 weeks and so everything was in the safe zone, right? And so we had this whole process of, um, you know, when things started to go badly and we had scans and, and it wasn't looking good and, and so we were started to pray. I'll be honest, it wasn't, wasn't completely faithful prayers. Um, there was a bit of desperation in there. And as I was as I was kind of in the midst of, um, of this miscarriage, and I got up uh, off the couch, and I started, to, I started to pray, but I started to praise. I was like, because I didn't even have words, because all I kept saying to God was, please. <sighs> Sorry, 24 years later, it still gets me. <laughs> but I got up. And I managed for, for one moment to actually praise God. I didn't get, I didn't get what I wanted. But I actually, I lost that sense of desperation. And even though I was really sad and, and upset, that, that desperation had shifted with the praise. And then, and then we had this situation where I, I, I had been sick. So for those of you who don't know, I have Crohn's disease and I'd had this major flare up and ended up in Auckland Hospital and, and they're doing the CT scan. In the middle of the scan, the technician shuts it down. She comes running in. She says, there's fluid in your womb. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And she said, it means you're pregnant. And I said, oh, no, I had a miscarriage back in December. This is in late February. I said, oh, no, I had a miscarriage back in December. And she goes, no, no. She goes, you're pregnant. And um, because all this stuff, the radiation or whatever, the baby's now going to be born deformed. You actually need to have an abortion. To which I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I can't do that. And I said, and Craig wasn't there. I was actually there by myself. He was still in Wellington. He was furiously trying to get up to me. And I said to them, is it, 
is it going to harm me? Like, am I going to be harmed through this process? And they said, no. I said, well, then I can't. I said, I'm sorry, the, the only reason a Christian can have an abortion is if the mother's life is at risk. My life is not at risk. And they're like, well, you know, there's a whole other dramas because they had a, the hospital hadn't followed due process. So they put me under a care of um, the, the leading gynecologist and um, stuff like that. So we literally watched this child form in the womb. Every two weeks, they would scan me. And as they're scanning me and stuff, um, but the threat of miscarriage was constantly there. Like, just all the signs were there, all the bleeding was still there, and there was lots of that kind of whole thing happening. And the prayers were really desperate. There wasn't, there wasn't much faith. In fact, I, was, I, was, I went a little crazy. Crazy was just a little bit. I, I was not very, very focused in that season. In the day... I would be like, because you know, because you kept bleeding and stuff. So I was just like, you know what, God, just, just, can we just end this now? Can we just, you know, because this is just dragging out. Can we, can we, do, can you just take the baby now? And can I just get through that healing and then just move on? But at night, gosh, it was so hard. Because at night, at midnight, when I'm with those thoughts running through my head, I would roll over and I would grab my Bible and I'd just go, God, please. God, please, and I couldn't even articulate the words. And, I, and it was awful. It was an awful situation to be in, and I didn't, I didn't even have faith for it. I didn't have, I wouldn't, and I couldn't talk to anybody. Craig wanted to tell people that I was pregnant. I said, you're not allowed. You can't tell anybody. We told our family. Our family was the only ones who knew. I had six months, and he goes, can I tell people now? No. Thing is, Oddly enough, my womb talks backwards, so you couldn't tell I was pregnant. I just looked really thick, like just like, but I didn't look pregnant. So I was able to actually hide it from everybody for a long time. And I had this, this mental anguish of during the day, does God take this baby? And then at night, oh God, please don't. And it was really unstable, mentally place to be in. And then God, God in his mercy. And the whole time, of course, we've got the threat of the scans of, is this baby whole? Is this baby going to be, is this baby going to survive? Is this baby going to be born deformed? Is it going to mean the baby's going to not live long after birth? Uh, is this baby going to be, um, you know, uh, can we look after this baby? And God in his mercy, she was born perfectly fine. Except her brother says she's a butin because she has one green eye and one brown eye. But she was born whole, and it was, and it was, and, and I'll be honest with you, I, it wasn't because I had faith for that, because I just, I was a mess. But I hadn't praised God at all. I was just this mess. And then we had a, we had another miscarriage, and that was when I said to Craig, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. You know, God bless us with this one child, and, and you know, sure, she'll probably grow up a brat because she'll be, you know, an only child, or she'll be self-indulged, but I don't care. You know, you know, let's just take this blessing of God, and let's just be thankful for it. So he said, okay, I think because he knew that I was just not in a place to deal with any of that. And then um, we fell pregnant again, and there was also the whole threat of miscarriage, and it got to the point where the doctor said, you have to go on bed rest. You have to have 11 weeks of, I, had to, I ended up on 11 weeks of bed rest. And I was allowed to walk to the letterbox. No, yeah, I was allowed to walk to the letterbox and back once a day. That was it. Otherwise, I had to be in bed. But this time, 
was different. And this time was different because I was determined to praise God through the process, regardless of what happened. And I remember having that conversation, God and I were having that conversation. I said to him, I said, okay, God, you, I, I trust that you've got this. And if this baby isn't viable, if this baby doesn't survive, then I trust God that you have a reason for that. And I trust God that you have everything in hand. And so I spent that whole pregnancy praising God, regardless of what was happening. So no matter what the circumstances were telling me, no matter how much I was bleeding or how much pain I was in at certain times or how exhausted I was, any of that, I still praise God. In fact, I did break their rules and I didn't stay in bed the whole time because every Sunday I would get up and I would go to church and I would sit in the seat. I wouldn't stand, but I would sit in the seat and I would worship God and I would hear the Word of God and then I would just go home again. But the difference is that I praise God. And the difference in myself mentally through that season, had this, were the circumstances the same? Pretty much, threading, you know, the threat of miscarriage of both those babies was the same. The difference was in one season, I praised God and in the other one I didn't. And in the one that I didn't, as much as I got what I wanted, it was awful. It was an awful nine months. I did not enjoy being pregnant at all. I didn't even buy that baby anything. You know when you go out because you're excited and you go and buy them clothes? I didn't do it. I couldn't. But when I was pregnant with Seth, I had a completely different outlook and I brought the clothes and I thought, you know what, God, I'm buying these clothes and even if you take this child and he ends up in heaven, he doesn't end up with me, I can gift these to somebody else. But my attitude was completely different and I had strength for what I was going through because I had praised God, because I had praised Him in this season. So what, I, what I'm trying to explain to you is that it sucks having to believe for a miracle because it means that you have to rely on God to do it. And He may say to you, yes, He may say to you, no, or He may say to you, wait. But no matter what His answer is, you will have strength for that season if you praise Him. If you praise Him. I want to encourage you, whatever it is that you're believing for, I don't know what He's going to say to you. I don't know if He's going to say yes or no. But the miracle of praise is that regardless of what answer He gives you, you will walk out of it stronger than you went into it. And I'd like you all to get to your feet because I want us to take a moment to actually bring praise to Him. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what is happening in your world. You might have a provision, a financial provision you need. You might have healing that you need. You might have an absolute miracle where you need God to do something so miraculous that you're too scared to even consider it. But I want you to bring that to your mind. And then we're gonna sing and we're gonna praise God because we praise Him for who He is, not for what He has done. And regardless of the circumstances that you are facing, you're gonna praise God and you're gonna to leave today stronger than when you came in. And you're gonna to leave today being able to fight against when the enemy says things in your mind, you will fight against that because you are praising God and you are strong enough because we serve a God who loves. And even if you don't get what you've been praying for, Everything works out together for good who those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You ready? We're gonna do this.